Here we go. What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Welcome back, Nightmare Success in and out listeners. We, uh, so everybody, you know, comes here for, you know, what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? How do you adapt, survive, overcome, set yourself free? I've got a great guest here today who has done all that. And you've, you might have seen him on TV. Um, Justin Paperny is, um, he's the author of a couple of books called Lessons from Prison, Ethics in Motion. Uh, he's, he's been a speaker for Fortune 500 companies, colleges. And you've probably seen him like, he was just recently on the news uh, talking about Elizabeth Holmes. He's kind of the go-to guy. You know, he's on ABC News, NBC, Forbes, Fox News. It's a first on the show. I've never had anybody on that's been interviewed by Dr. Phil. So that that is a gold star there to get interviewed by Dr. Phil. He's been on so many other things. Um, just a quick synopsis. You know, this this was a guy that was making it when, you know, he went to uh, Southern California University. Uh, he got to be a stockbroker. He's managing about, you know, over $250 million in assets. And uh, personal pressures kind of clouded his judgment, and he ended up serving 18 months in federal prison. And he now is just doing, you know, you always wonder what can happen when all this happens. He runs a company now that's uh, called White Collar Advice that helps people walk through their nightmare of a government investigation. And that's such a cloudy, cloudy place to be and blurry, and he really helps put clarity to it. And, you know, there's always so much more ease in the fact of getting to the known instead of just the unknown, because your mind can make things out to be so bad. And it's usually not as bad as your mind makes it out to be. So uh, before we get to all that, I just want to recognize our sponsor uh, for the show, Auto Plaza Direct. You know, who likes spending a couple of weekends walking the car lot looking for a car? And then you spend like four or five hours in the dealership to buy a car. It's kind of like a trip to the dentist. Well, there's a better way to take away all that pain and hassle of getting a car. Auto Plaza Direct, they are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price and deliver that car to you wherever you are. They also offer you warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, autoplazadirect.com. Tell them Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Justin Paperny, welcome. Thank you for taking time. I appreciate Grateful it. Grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. So, Justin, you have been, how long have you been out? 2008? I was a little later, I was released to the halfway house May 20th, 2009, 2009. And officially released from BOP custody the 16th of August, 2009. And that feels different when you get released from that supervision. And you know, I had three years of that supervision. And, and Well, yes. Yeah. So I was done with supervised release in 2012. Prisoners, at least I did, tend to underestimate what that release from prison will, will be like. So my current business partner, Michael Santos, who served 26 years in prison, right. mentored me in prison, guided me, really put me on this path. 
I suffered from what's called like short term itis before my release because I was just so obsessed about what life would be like yeah. after prison. Those last few weeks of prison were totally unproductive. But then you leave prison, in my case, around 7 a.m., then I had to get to the halfway house by noon. And that's, I don't want to say complex because at that point, we've already been through so much. We're just conditioned to like whatever comes. Sure. But it's really a quasi release because you only got five hours to get there. You don't want to be late. And I can understand why some guys were like, man, I am just turning down the halfway house and I'm going to go straight to probation. And initially, once I got to the halfway house, I was like, hmm, maybe I should have turned down that halfway house, too. I could be walking around that dusty dirt track and continuing to write. So no, I mean, the release, uh, it, it's never like you envision it in your mind. No, no. And in, in, in that halfway house is not, uh, you know, for me, I felt the same way, Justin. I, I felt like I, I could have done my time better because it, it's it's. Um, you get the half, my halfway house in St. Louis was absolutely. Horrible. I hear that's one of. I hear that might actually be the worst one in the country. And they had their they had their contract taken away from them, but they couldn't get another halfway house up and going, so they gave contract back to them. And and it's, uh, it's rewarding. It's rewarding failure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's in the halfway house. You know, when it first got you know in play, was supposed to help you out. You know, supposed to put you on your way. And this, you know, sometimes they're just not. I want to go back a little bit. I want to people to get to know you. Um, sure. What was life for you as a kid, as Justin growing up? Every, every break in the world, man. So we encourage our clients to be open, to be honest, to be authentic. If there was someone who had privilege and opportunity and born with a cliched silver spoon, you were looking at them. <laughs> my parent, my, the best, greatest parents in the world, still the greatest parents in the world. If I can parent half as well as my parents, then I'll be a wonderful father taught me right from wrong, gave me every opportunity. I was a student athlete, a baseball player, and I had ruthless coaches. I frequently said if YouTube existed when my coaches coached me in the 80s, they'd all be fired because they were so difficult and so ruthless, but they were great, effective coaches. But they held me accountable. If I was late for practice, I didn't, I didn't play. Always competing. And since I was about eight, baseball felt like a full-time job. And that carried me through the Pony World Series, the Babe Ruth World Series, then had an opportunity to play on the USC baseball team. And in 1995, we lost in the national championship of the College World Series. So a lot of opportunity, a lot of privilege, a lot of discipline. I worked hard. And I would argue until I went into the brokerage world, I was, I tended, I've always, I tended to behave and act like the people that I was around. Sure. So if I was around my teammates who were honest and character and commitment. I was that way. In the brokerage world, I was around some guys that were kind of shady. I'm like, hey, maybe that's that's the way to go. I share this funny, I don't know if it's funny, when I was in high school, I would take the AP classes and I'd be at the top. I'd pass all the AP classes. But if I was in the lowest class, I'd kind of perform at that level. And my, the principal told my parents, your son tends to perform around the group. We got to put him in the highest group because he does just as well. I could also descend apparently to the bottom of the group as well. So that's a tendency I had to work on and I did in prison. Do you think that playing sports, having the discipline and accountability helped you get through some of the things you had to go through? Yes, as articulated in Lessons from Prison, a book nobody needs to buy. It's free at whitecollaradvice.com. Don't, don't write it. Don't buy it. In the first few pages, I express how playing baseball conditioned me for a life of discipline and commitment and, and work ethic and putting putting team first. If I had an 0 for 4 game, that was okay as long as the team won. If there's a runner on second with no outs, I can assure you I'm hitting the ground ball to the right side and getting the runner over. I was a very good teammate and I believed in, in winning and commitment and discipline. And a lot of that went by the wayside when I became a stockbroker. But baseball really put me on a path 
it helped it put me on a path for what should have been a law-abiding really con contributing life so you're th you're, you're you're really saying that you were on the right path. You got around in the stockbroker world. You started having success. But the people that you were around, like you said, when you were in school, you, you began to kind of meld into that. I felt like everyone was out for themselves. Yeah. There was no, unlike uh, when I was a baseball player, if I worked hard and performed, I would play more. I would make the travel team to Stanford or Arizona State. In the brokerage industry, I felt like my hard work and efforts weren't appreciated, applauded. I didn't feel as if they viewed me as a contributing, contributing member of the team. Yeah. And I saw so many partnerships fail over money. And yeah. I was averse to a partnership for a very long time because of money. And I felt like the senior brokers were leveraging off the work of the junior brokers. And I said, that's not going to be me. Then I had an opportunity at 26 to go to Bear Stearns. And at the time, I was the youngest broker they had hired. But to go to Bear, because it was really a niche boutique firm I like a Goldman Sachs or just beneath it. I had to agree to join a partnership. Yeah. Even though I knew partnerships fail, I didn't want it, but I wanted to be at Barrett 26. And it was through that partnership that I began to make really bad choices and put me on a path where years later, I would eventually plead guilty to a fraud. But it was really set up in bad decisions I made while working with my senior partner at UBS and then Bear Stearns and UBS. So can you help walk us through that as that as that came upon you, did you know when things were happening and you were doing things where you, you know, your judgment through pressures uh, was pushing you in a direction that you, did you know that there was an investigation going on? Did you have any idea about it or was it just boom one day? So when I went to UBS in 2001, we had we received a big bonus to move our book from Bear to UBS, and they were expecting us to produce and perform. And for myriad reasons, our production had fallen a bit, and we saw brokers beginning to get let go, ostensibly for ethical violations. But that was nonsense; they weren't producing. So I even saw then there's kind of a two-tiered way of treating brokers: if you perform, you're treated one way; if you don't perform, you're treated another way. So kind of to salvage the day or buy us some time, we brought in a hedge fund client who only had six million dollars under management, but it was an options hedge fund. In other words, it could generate as much as $100,000 a month in production every month, which is truly significant, especially for one client. Problems followed when he he brought in the $6 million and lost it. He raised another $6 million and lost it. So our intellect and experience told us, clearly, he's only raising money by lying to people because no rational investor would give their money to someone who's down 100% in their hedge fund. Sure. So that was like the initial telltale sign. But we kind of turned the other way, as the judge would later say, for money, because we like the commissions. Yeah. And we reasoned, we're not managing the money. The hedge fund manager is. We're just executing the trades on an unsolicited basis. So even though we knew he was making misrepresentations to raise money, we weren't there. We can't, couldn't confirm what he said, but we knew he was lying. And we kind of, we create, I shouldn't say kind of, we schemed with management at UBS to try to protect ourselves from any fallout to ensure the gravy train of commissions would continue. And it eventually all came crashing down in December 2004 when investors in my client's hedge fund, like uh, they wanted their money. And we learned then that money was coming in. He would trade, lose. If somebody wanted their money back, he would send it to them and kind of like a classic Ponzi. Sure. So it was a matter of time before investors began to reach out. And that's when the investigation began, December of 2004. So you would have been a pretty uh, young man at that time. Yes, I was 28, 29, I was 28 years old. 
that's that's a lot to think about at 28, 29 years old. That I didn't even know how to process or think about it. Uh, the only downside, perhaps, of being raised so well with opportunity and no adversity is when adversity struck, I didn't know how to respond. Yeah. Right. So there's so many fine men with whom I serve time. So many of our clients of white collar advice who have endured struggle throughout their loss of a parent, a sibling, substance abuse issues, alcohol issues, and they've overcome it and they've worked or raised with nothing and just working their ass off to build and grow. Right. That's inspiring. So many of them respond favorably because they're like, hey, this is another adversity. I've been through it before. I'm going to learn from that. In my case, I'd never overcome any adversity except, oh, I didn't make the travel trip to Stanford this weekend. Big deal, right? <laughs> so I didn't know how to respond other than to lie and to feign ignorance, cover up, blame, excuse. Um, that was a dream for a lawyer because I would scratch a check, waste money and time, never gave them a chance to help me effectively. So I was initially a terrible defendant because I didn't know how to help others and I certainly didn't know how to help myself. It's interesting because, you know, one of the things that the, you know, you see it on the movies, you see it, you know, everywhere that you, you got to tell the, you got to tell the attorney the truth so he can, he can help you and, and get you through whatever you're going through. Well, well, p part of the problem with that is so many defendants don't even know the truth. So it's sure. very easy to say, tell me the truth, but if the truth is distorted or yeah. they're full of rationalizations or lies, or I didn't have bad intentions, it wasn't me, I was swept into this. We want people to per perceive us positively, and they, we don't want to be perceived as criminals. That's a blow to our character and self-esteem. Hello, I'm a criminal. I mean, who wants that? Right. So we tend to we sort of cloak the truth, and in so doing, we don't give the lawyer a chance to really help us. So one of the first things our team does at White Collar Advice when we begin working with someone, we do a very cathartic, lengthy interview, going back to the day they were born until today, and we fill it in. But we say to them, you've got to be authentic. You've got to purge. You've got to share the worst, most sickening details. Only then can you begin to kind of stare it out. How'd you get here? And then we can put you on a path to do better. No cliches or platitudes. It really requires introspection. Well, and I think that's one of the big things that you do, Justin, is that a lot of people, most people, do not know how important that pre-sentencing report is. And uh, defense attorneys, it's not even part of the game. You know, the, their their job is to get you to a hopefully reasonable plea agreement, and then they're done. They don't know anything about prison. They really don't know the importance of the pre-sentencing report. And so you're on your own unless you know someone who knows how important that is because that pre-sentencing report follows you all the way through your case managers, your probation, everything that happens uh, you've, t you talked, and I was watching a little bit of your Dr. Filth, uh, interview with what's important with that pre-sentencing report. Well, even first off, the pre-sentence report is more important than ever because of the first step act in the pre-sentence report. You can demonstrate why you're extraordinary and compelling and how you're going to continue to be extraordinary and compelling, which is something you can share with a case manager, a judge down the road. And the first thing your probation officer is trained to do is look at your probation report, which could have happened years earlier. We do get some resistance from lawyers who devalue the value of the pre-sentence report, and they just don't seem to understand this probation officer is going to make a recommendation to a federal judge on how long our client should serve in prison. For that reason, does it make sense to influence this person as positively as possible? We do that in part with a very personal, very powerful personal narrative. Get the narrative into the report. The judge can see it in the report. I mean, you've been sentenced. Yeah, become, become a person, right? Yeah, the, the first thing the judge typically asks at sentencing is, 
Have you read the pre-sentence report? Yes. Do you understand it? Did you review it with your lawyer? Yes. Some judges value the pre-sentence report more than the government or the defense attorney's sentencing position. For that reason, the narrative should be in the report and you should be prepared to respond honestly. With respect to the goal of the report, it's not magic. It should be honest. If there are victims, you need to express how you identify with victims. Share details about your life, both good and bad, as Judge Pearson told me on stage when we presented. It is the job of the defendant in the pre-sentence interview to express or share every fracture of their life. She then said, even a multimillionaire, a billionaire that's in my courtroom, there's been some fracture that led them here. Yeah. I need to know the fracture from the defendant. If not, I'm going to default to the government who has an agenda, to the defense attorney who has an agenda, namely, I'm paid to say why my client shouldn't go to prison. So our work is about self-advocacy, helping the defendant express through their own words who they are, what they've learned, where they're going, why they will never return to another courtroom. Not through happy talk, but with a plan. And those that do it tend to get better outcomes. Uh, that's a great point. Let's go back to you on that moment. You come down, you feel, you, you, you know, the investigations happened, uh, you know, at a moment in time, you have to make a decision. Am I going to be the 97% that's indicted and, and you plea, or am I going to get a trial? What, what went through your mind in that time period? Well, it was all, it was sickening and stunning to, to hear my lawyer express to me that they feel that I was complicit and culpable in this fraud. And I just couldn't imagine it. I was, I didn't, it was all the rationalists. I didn't do the trading. It was unsolicited. And what made matters worse was I lied to the interview when they, uh, the FBI, when they interviewed me. I wasn't prepared for the interview. They asked me questions. I lied. They had evidence that co clearly contradicted what I had said. And I'm pretty good friends with Paul Bertram, the FBI agent that arrested me. He's the one that invited me to the FBI Academy to speak in March of 11. Mm -hmm. And he told the agents that had I told the truth when they questioned me, there's a chance they wouldn't have referred me to David Willingham, the U.S. attorney, who's now a defense attorney. There's a chance they wouldn't refer me for prosecution. So the takeaway for defendants is, as human beings, we make mistakes. You may have made a mistake that got you entrenched in this sickening system. But what do you do after that? Do you own it? Do you accept responsibility? Or do you act like a fool like me and lie and make things worse? So my post-defense conduct wasn't, wasn't good which compelled them to think I'm a really bad guy. Not only did I do it, I'm covering up and not accepting responsibility. So again, I responded poorly and it wasn't until I hired new lawyers who helped me understand, you're looking at five years in prison. Here's why you'll probably get five years in prison. Here's the consequence of lying to the government. Here's the consequence of playing a lot of golf and selling real estate, thinking this is behind you. I learned my co-defendant who was more culpable was cooperating. It's like, wait a second. He's more culpable, but because he's cooperating, he's going to get two years and I'm going to get five. And I begin to learn kind of the twisted, wretched nature of this system. It's not about who did it or who got swept into it. It's about accepting responsibility and they favor cooperators. And I don't blame him. He had a wife and four kids. Right. He did the smart thing. Right. I was the fool that lied. So that initial response is crucial. You'd be stunned. Well, you're not stunned. You're in the same business. How many think uh, they're different or special? Or how many think, oh, the investigation's just beginning. Like, no, no, no. The FBI told me, and I agree, when they show up at your front door and they're in the bottom of the eighth inning, the question is, how do you respond? But defendants think it's just starting. We have time. They know everything. The question is, what do you do? Yeah. Because they, they, they come to you last. They've, they've already done all their homework. A lot well of said. That's 
A lot of people don't realize that, but that's that's the way that it works. Well, and also, some, and I don't want to bash lawyers here. We work with some of the best law firms in America, from Quinn sure. Emanuel, Perkoui, Latham, and Watkins. We're grateful for the referrals and the relationships, but it doesn't change that every now and again, a new client or someone will call and say, my lawyer told me to get off the internet that I just got indicted and it's too early to prepare and just relax. It's like, well, it wasn't too early for them to indict you. You had to hire a lawyer for them to issue a Department of Justice press release. Your bank just fired you. You lost your job. The DOJ is preparing for trial. Doesn't seem too early to me. You make your own decision. Yeah. So you finally get to uh, sentencing. Do you know kind of what you're looking at? I had a big break leading up to sentencing because my co-defendant got indicted on new charges. So they ripped up his plea and much of what he said against me, they couldn't use. Much of it was also fabricated. And the government gave me a second chance at veracity. Namely, I worked with the Securities and Exchange Commission to help them understand how this fraud sort of happened so there could be more regulatory changes moving forward. As a result of that, they found that UBS was culpable. Indeed, they were. So UBS wrote a check to the victims for about $9 million to make them whole. So that dramatically reduced my number yeah. of the guidelines victims, are still the yeah, same. Right. When everyone's been paid back, they hit me with $500,000 in restitution. Where I, where they came up with that number, I have no idea. I contributed 100000 at my sentencing hearing. And because my case went on for three years, and during that time, I eventually got it together. I was working, building a new record, had very good character reference letters, had done some volunteer work. I had been able to show nothing more important than work as a defendant. Building a new record as a law-abiding citizen, that really persuaded the judge that I was making good changes. So the government asked for 24 months, and Judge Stephen Wilson gave me 18 months in federal prison. So you get that sentence, and I'm I'm assuming you voluntarily surrendered. I was given 60 days to self-surrender to Taft Federal Prison Camp, which is now closed. it's it's an un, it's a you know I voluntarily surrendered also it's a, what what was going through your mind as you're standing there, walking into your new unknown world. Well, in a sick way, I was kind of excited to get there because at least the clock would begin Started ticking. To go exactly right because while you're waiting for so long, you don't get credit for time served. So I was kind and of excited. And that, to- I, I kind of feel like don't you, Justin, that that might be some of the worst time that time period between the time you're sentenced and the, the time you get the, that letter in the mail to tell you where you're going. And then, then that time that you have just to know there's nothing you can do about it. You're yeah, going. It's, it's, it's the worst time. Cause even before sentencing, even though like, you, you know, you're going to prison, you still hold out hope that maybe you'll get probation. Yep. But then once you're sentenced and you have time to go in, I can understand why some guys, even who get remanded at sentencing while initially hate it, they're glad at least they start to get credit for time in custody. So the time before I went in, what was difficult, but it did give me, I was fortunate. I was 29. Oh no, by then I was 30, 32. I wasn't married. I didn't have children. I still had some resources. I was able to rent out my home and I began to kind of focus like on the next phase. I put on about 30 pounds while fighting my case. And I said, okay, I'm going to get there. I'm going to exercise. I did. I became a long distance runner. I'm going to write and just recalibrate. And I had help because of Michael Santos, my partner who mentored and guided me every step of the way. But back to that first day, I remember thinking to myself, what the hell is wrong with so many of these dudes? What are they smiling about? Right? Like you hit the compound, you're freaked out. It's your first day in jail. And I'm like, these dudes are walking the track. What are they smiling about? This guy's gardening over here. looks like he's having the time of his life. This guy's shopping in the commissary and eating ice cream. That's weird. So, you know, I'm, I felt weird. What are these guys smiling about there in prison? Then, of course, a few weeks later, I'm that 
same way I walk in the track and smiling. So that first day, it was a surprise, it, especially at how self-directed it was. Your recollection may be the same. They just sort of throw you out into the compounds. They go to laundry. Okay, that's your dorm. Yeah. Like, okay. And it's like self-paced, excuse me, self-directed. You just sort of figure it out. Although someone did say to me, make sure you're back here in time for standing count. I'm like, what's that? And it was my first census count at 4 p.m. Yeah. So the first day goes by quickly. It's, it's emotional. It's fast. What I learned, and I talk about this with the Elizabeth Holmes case, in every case, it's not so much the first day. It's three weeks, three months, six months in when the reality hits you, like, I'm going to be here for a while. Yeah. I'm here. And what am I doing with my time? But I think what's interesting, if you if you kind of dig into your book, you know, you you created a life for yourself, uh, created goals, and you weren't going to waste time. You know, there, there's only two ways and two prisoners in, in that do their time. There's those that give up and they almost mm -hmm. kind of roll into a fetal position. And there's those that are trying to make it work. And you were the guy that tried to make it work. Can you kind of share, because I know your Michael Santos story was interesting because you were kind of, when you guys first talked, we were a little bit uh, intimidated by him because everybody else was talking. Hey, that guy's guy has a forty-five year sentence. He's been here a long time. He's well, and, it, and then he became your mentor. Well, it, yes. So look, it's, everyone knew who Michael Santos was. He was a prolific, famous prisoner because he had written so much on the internet, and his accomplishments were second to none. Undergraduate, master's degree. Now, programs that he creates are in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. They're approved First Step Act programs. Every prison in California uses our work. Hundreds of thousands of prisoners benefit. Imagine a guy served 26 years in prison. The BOP is endorsing our work, implementing our work. That's how transformative he is. But I will tell you, I wasted some time when I got to prison. All I fixated on exercise day and night. And I was really no different from someone who watched TV all day. I was just channeling it through exercise. And several months into my federal prison sentence, Michael asked me, said on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your preparations for going home? And I I had to be honest, other than exercise, I was kind of wasting my time. Yeah. Then he helped me understand, you probably saw this too, like some guy's nervous and kind of scared to go home because it's like, well, what, what awaits me on the other side? Yeah. Like I'm not ready, a solid reputation, my career's in the toilet, I have no money, like well, maybe so, I will just down the halfway guys that would actually get close to the door that would catch another charge because they were afraid to get out to the freedom. For, for, for sure. So that was my aha moment a few months into the prison term when Michael helped me understand how the choices that I was making we're going to translate to life after prison. So from there, I really ramped it up. No more six-hour exercise days. It was a couple of hours. And then alongside Michael, we began to write a blog, uh, which did, got, got a lot of traction in prison. You're handwriting this blog with Michael's help. I was getting like hundreds of letters a month. And then based on the success of the blog, we then wrote Lessons from Prison, which is a book that I was published, self-published, about a week before I was released from prison. So I, I transitioned and began waking at three and four o'clock in the morning and time began to go too fast. And I was thinking like, I need more time to get this done. And I regretted wasting several months. So a big message we convey to people is, I know you don't want to be in prison. I'm not dumb, but if you're going to be there, make the most of it because eventually this experience is ending. Before we did a video, on, I filmed a YouTube short that I'll post where it's like our life inside is a little blip. I know you don't want to be there. It's a little blip. What happens for most people if they're not ready to come home, that little time inside kind of amounts to a life sentence, just a continuation of struggle. And I put my family through enough, man. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do it. I, no moss. I was done. 
And that's, it's interesting that you, because one of the things that I was thinking when I was standing at the gates of Leverworth, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get beaten up. I, I could get raped and maybe stabbed. And, yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that I found that was the biggest surprise to me walking into prison is how much help and good people there were to get me through. And I, you know, I was just talking to a guy the other day that's getting ready to go into prison. And he had been told by someone that, you know, you've, you've got to stay to yourself. Nobody's going to help you. And, and that's not really true. People, uh, because you're entering their world, unless you're cocky and arrogant and sure. and you've lived your life that way, you will get in trouble. You will, you know, possibly get in fights. But if you are a respectful person and you're just trying to get through, you're going to find a lot of help in there. Uh, and that was one of the biggest surprises to me. And I think it's uh, very telling that you and Michael Santos, he must have seen something in you, Justin, and, and then to for him to mentor you and and really give you the type of advice that you really needed was is you got to start thinking about because it's so easy to unplug in prison because in in a certain amount of time you don't have to worry about uh whatever's going on if you're if if you don't have a lot going on um you can just unplug it and you know i i had a little bit different deal because my wife came every weekend and and so i kind of sat on the fence of the outside and the inside but a lot of guys truly unplug from that. But that was incredible advice from Michael to say, hey, what are you doing? Well, it, that, that's right. And I'll tell you, he helped everyone. He taught a phenomenal class called Entrepreneurial Compass that he taught in the garage. He helped everyone who was willing to help themselves. Those who wanted the help, yeah. Yeah, in our case, you know, my, my mom was my biggest advocate. So she would, I think she wrote him before I even went to prison. My son's coming, be on the lookout for him. She, he would give her a little hug or say, Justin's doing okay in visitation. Yeah. Uh, you know, she, she was an erotic Jewish mother, you know, and I think he sensed that I wanted to do better, but I needed help. And I wasn't afraid to ask for help, right? I, I He saw that I was trying to, to do good things and make the good use of my time. I did my job. I didn't complain. I didn't have many friends as an introvert I kept to myself, but I knew immediately that I could learn from him. And my God, did I learn from him? Everything from perspective and recognizing that people have it such worse and helped me understand how so many fine men there, as you saw, had endured nothing but struggle and trauma throughout their life, yet they find the meaning in, in the blue sunset. They're mm. grateful if they can see their family every four or six months. So mm. I found that very inspiring and hopeful. And it frankly helped me get through that term. And I, I credit him for educating me and awakening me. So when you got close to the door of getting out to your freedom, you kind of had a plan of, of where and what you were wanting to do then. The book, my work evolved in prison based on what we were learning. The blog was transformative for me because some universities came across it. For example, DePaul University in Chicago, their business class came across the blog I was writing about this very cliche term in accounting called the fraud triangle. Know, pressure, rationalization, and opportunity. And the business class wrote me and said, would you answer some of our questions? So I did it in a blog. And based on that success, the university got permission to come and film me at the prison for a movie they eventually did that I posted to my YouTube channel. They actually filmed ago. you in the federal prison? They, yeah, there's That's a video unusual. on my YouTube. Yeah, there's a video. I know the warden gave permission. There's a video on my YouTube channel. You'll see me in federal prison in 2009 getting interviewed by DePaul. So I was writing about ethics and white collar crime, the consequences of cheating, 
And then I'd write about prison consulting, preparation, planning. So like one day was an ethics blog. The next day was a prison blog back and forth. So I was building this library or catalog that enabled me when I came home to use my assets like a book. Mm -hmm. So I would cold call or cold walk into a professor's office. Really, initially, it wasn't prison consulting or crisis management. It was public speaking, how I sustained myself. Mm -hmm. Some consulting. Uh, but, you know, when you come home from prison, you're taking anything. Just sure, to get going. exactly. You just so, want somebody to believe in you and take yeah, a job. So I would, yeah, so I would give the book to professors and ask if I could have an hour of their class to speak about ethics and white-collar crime. And you'd be surprised how many professors are willing to give you an hour. Yeah. And based on that success, I began to get more invitations. I'd ask for money. They gave it. So for years, it was speaking and the consulting, speaking and the consulting. And then around 2013, I grew tired of the travel, continuing to share my story. I'd been all over the country, hundreds of business schools, tons of businesses, law enforcement, many events with the FBI. And I wasn't sure. I want to talk about yeah. that, though, Justin, because yeah. I noticed that on your website with the FBI and the Justice Department. What did you go and speak and how did that all evolve and what was your message? So the the F, Paul Bertrand, now retired FBI agent who worked my case, was reading my blog in prison and he loved it. He would share it. He appreciated I was accepting responsibility, never complaining, sharing lessons learned, sharing regrets about how I wish I had prepared. Yeah. So even from prison, I'm saying, if you just got indicted, if you were in trouble, this is what I did, do it differently. So yes. I'm real. I was trying to help people. Sure. He appreciated that. He reached out, came across, I think a lecture I had done at USC, my alma mater. And he said, you're a pretty good presenter and speaker. I want to bring you out to enrichment night at the Academy. And we decided my life was a two hour presentation. The discussion was a denial on the white collar offender, the consequences of cheating and covering up and not accepting responsibility, how to work well with a lawyer with hopes that FBI agents who are investigating fraud can do their job better because they're intimidating when they walk into our home with their jackets <laughs> and their course, hats. Yeah. So helping them understand how to, to get the truth out of the defendants, how we perceive them and vice versa. But it was really helping them understand why a defendant who knows right from wrong would continue to make bad choices. Did, and that uh, investigation was well received. And I got to uh, ask you though, Justin, yeah. what did that feel like? You know, did it feel like just full circle? Uh, uh, you know, a, a full spectrum of your life had, had evolved. That you're back speaking to the people that you had misrepresented some things to when you were talking to them, and now you're back telling them how yeah. and why and what. Well, it, it was a wonderful day, and just before I went to speak, I received a very very nice letter from, from from Frank Abagnale, the character from Catch Me If yeah, You Can. Yeah. He had done some events at the FBI. He said, I heard you're going. I wish you well. And remember, this is about you and your family making amends. People may cast you aside, but your friends and family will always love and support you, and I wish you well. And I think someone had told, Keith Slaughter was his name, a former FBI agent, was friends with uh, Frank and told him that I was coming. So it was really cool to get that letter. I read his book in prison, much different from the movie, as you would expect. Yeah. So I felt like I was in this little circle, this people looking out for me, wanting to help me. And when I spoke, I felt like they treated me like an equal. They didn't say convict or inmate or prisoner. They said, this is Justin who used his time productively and wisely. And he's now using it to help other people. And he's going to help us. So you can dismiss the message because you think he's a criminal, or you can learn from it and understand how he can help you do your job better. So it was a wonderful day. It was two full days at the FBI. Besides the presentation, I got a tour. I went to all of the events. It was went to the Silence of the Lambs exhibit. It was pretty cool. Wow. But they treated me like an they treated me like an equal. And I frequently say the feds are great unless they're arresting you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get 
what what is your what is your feeling in talking about that? You know, the FBI and the feds and and the and the world that we live in right now. Uh, do you have an opinion about where we are in the world? No, I, I should. I don't. So I have a very busy career. I'm married. I have two young children. If I'm not working, I'm with them. God forbid I squeeze in a round of golf twice a month, <laughs> run and try to stay fit. So I don't follow it. As we get closer to the election, I'll look. I have friends text me. We're both on, you know, liberal and uh, uh-huh. the feds. How could you? How could you have done an event with the FBI? They're taking down <laughs> the former president. Other, I don't really respond. I'm too busy. Oh, I understand I'm just, that. I'm just focused on. I'm just focused on you know, our work here. I yeah. try to, and I really don't cover that in. in the, no, and the that's video. a little PTSD anyway for any of us to yeah. uh, to go into that realm. Uh, now, quickly, I will offer insights on low-hanging fruit. They love the low-hanging fruit. And perhaps some cases that are more complex, they don't want to try or spend the resources. They may let someone walk. Sure. So just because I've done events with the FBI doesn't mean I don't think they occasionally overreach sure. and prosecute and send people to prison who shouldn't go to prison, sure. including many, many of our clients. I mean, we had someone in a tax case, $3 million tax evasion, scratched a check, wrote it all, wrote it all back. Guidelines are, are very low. Did everything correctly. And the judge and the FBI still gave him six months in, in federal prison. I think it's a waste of taxpayer resources. So, but that's part of what our team does: understand the stakeholders. What is their objective? What is your objective? Yeah, you break it down, create clarity yeah. out of it. You know, when you, how long do you think it was, Justin, getting back into society that you felt like you kind of had your got rid of the sea legs and you were walking, feeling normal? I was in Italy on my I was in Italy on my honeymoon. Is that right? So for a couple of years, I just, I didn't feel ready. Even when I began to date and, and even though I was having success as a speaker and beginning to make some money, I was raised a certain way. And you think, well, I'm not going to get married and have kids till I can provide that same lifestyle. That was a foolish way to think you're, you're never ready. Right. Right. So I delayed relationships. I ended relationships and I just worked day and night and I never took pleasure in the success because you always wonder, is it, will it continue? Yeah. Will it continue? And it wasn't until I met my now wife, Sandra, and we, you know, we got married and then we were in just Italy. And I felt like, okay, like I'm getting closer. I can enjoy this. I can take some time off of work. We can move towards having a family. I don't have to worry. Like, is the phone going to ring by then? Even four or five years out of jail, we had a consistent flow of leads Mm -hmm. based on videos, content, the book, lawyers, still getting speaking events. So I would really say it was in September of 2013 on my honeymoon in Italy where I feel like I ex- exhaled for the yeah. first time. Because for that first four years, man, especially coming home in the Great Recession of 09, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was brutal. I didn't pay my health insurance for a couple of years. Don't feel sorry for me. I had it better than most. But it was a transition. And a, a tendency I had was to still compare myself to other people. Well, did you ever do that? I'd look at my friends who were married, business, traveling. A freaking friend of mine had a jet. I'm like, what, what's happening here? I felt further behind because of my experience. Did you ever feel that way? Like you had to play catch up? Absolutely. Because I think, uh, you know, when you've had a lot, you know, the, but I, here, here's one thing that I, I really came down to when I was in prison, having a lot, I also found, and it's, it's somewhat liberating when your world gets down to a locker, a plastic chair and a bunk bed, and you can still survive and you can still continue to be you and still believe that you can affect change or make a difference. Uh, that's a different feeling. It almost is like, I don't know that I would have known that unless I would have been in that world at that time. And, and I realized to myself, Brent, you're going to be okay. You, yep. 
you can survive and be okay. And this is what you have. And, you know, the reason I ask you the question about it, no matter, even if you've gotten yourself, you know, uh, prepared to get out. And and, and in my case, I had, I was lucky I had friends that, that believed in me and gave me a job. And, but still, it, there was a time period there where I was not feeling like myself. It was just, sure. you know, there was, I don't know if I was looking over my shoulder. I don't know what it was, but I think it's just after a while, you do finally get back into your feel of who you are. I, I agree with that. And thankfully, in my case, so much, so many of the lessons I learned, I was able to, to implement and um, I'm, I just, I didn't waste the time. I don't want any, you didn't waste the time. I know you don't want to be there, but don't waste the time because if you do, it's just so much harder uh, on the other side. I mean, guys obsess about getting out. Where are my first step back credits? I get it. You want to do RDAP and get the year off. I get it. You want the shortest sentence possible. I get it. Of course, yes. you want the shortest. Sentence. But what are you doing with that time? Because I'll tell you, white collar advice, we get maybe a thousand people a month opt into our marketing campaigns. They get a book, it's organic, whatever it is. And about 20% of those people are home from prison. Mm-hmm. And we speak with and work with some of them. And when we speak with them, and part of the reason they're continuing to struggle is because of the choices they made in custody. There's no programming. There's nothing right. that I, there's nothing that I could do. It was so boring. All of these excuses, they didn't focus on what they could control. There's no program. You can still go to library. You can still write. You can still do something. Right. And a lot of men or, and women reach the end of their prison term with regrets like, damn. I wasted it. I might have just, just wasted this time. Yeah. And reentry is tough. Reentry is tough regardless. And, uh, you know, it's, and you, you've, what is the statistic of two thirds in three years, uh, three fourths and five, something like that is, is, is just an astronomical number on, on, uh, recidivism. But, uh, you have to, I think, work twice as hard. And that's just what you have to do, uh, going back out into society because you are branded as an ex felon. So you, you have to have a plan and a plan that's probably, you know, with a little heavier lift, because you are going to have to tell your story. You're going to have to make people believe that you are capable and willing, and 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 are going to do that second chance that that you want to earn. And that's uh, it takes a little extra effort, no doubt about it. It's not easy. It's a very good point. Something I articulate: people have to embrace sort of this underdog status. Yep. Right. Underdogs. If you go toe to toe with someone who's not a felon, you probably lose. So you have to think creatively. Yes. And there's a great book on that subject uh, written by Malcolm Gladwell, David and Goliath, how underdogs win or something like that. And you do that by owning your story, not running from it, by accepting responsibility, sharing lessons learned rather than pretending this didn't happen. So by approaching that underdog status, so to speak, it positioned me to have conversations and for people to then say, well, I admire how you've responded to this. You've turned lemons into lemonade is the cliche holds. That's what I wanted for my life rather than running, excusing, blaming, and just hoping this would end. It never ends. We're so conditioned to it now because we talk about it and we've been through it, but it doesn't change. Like the first time I told a woman out of jail, I went to prison. I'm like, well, that's got to be a big hit to take, right? She probably wasn't expecting that. <laughs> my, my young children will know. And now my daughter knows because she's heard me on work calls and just I do media from home. Like, well, my dad went to, to prison helping her understand that. And so for me or you, we're so desensitized to it. But when people hear prison, they think prison. I mean, it's a really big deal. Um, 
as much as we want to say club fed and minimize it, it was federal prison after all. And there are lasting consequences to it. And it requires planning to overcome that. Do you think it's liberating? Because I find it liberating just to, you know, when you write a book or you do a podcast or you do the work that you're doing, there's no hiding the fact of who you are and and what your story is. Because I, 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 you know, I find there's two, there's two ways to go when somebody has, is living as an ex-felon. One is, is to shield it, hide it, shame from it. Uh, don't, hopefully nobody can find out, which it was always not true uh, because it's so easy to find out. Or you can stand out in front of it and say, His, this is who I am. This is what I've learned. And this is what I'm doing. Do you, do you feel that, Justin, with what you're doing and how you've handled your work? For, for sure. I wanted to let my experience through the system become one of my greatest assets, yeah. like Jordan Belfort or Frank Abagnale or Michael Santos or Piper, whoever is Orange is the New yeah, Black. Yeah, Orange but is the New Black. I, I, yeah. yeah, I wanted to uh, to use my experience, let it become my best asset. And when I was in prison and began to write, my brother kind of begged me, like, don't write this book, don't write this blog, someone will hire you, you have a lot of skills, You're, you can do something. I'm like, I don't want a handout. Yeah. Uh, and but he didn't understand my position. He didn't understand that I por- prepared poorly and I'm in a position now to help people do it better. Yeah. And I sensed an opportunity as an entrepreneur to create a business. And Michael and I have grown it successfully over the last 14 years. So I want to create a win-win, help others and help myself. But you can't do that by pretending this didn't happen. Someone re- recently reached out. They wanted to join our team. I said, well, let's do a YouTube interview together. He's like, well, no, 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 I don't want to go there. I said, you can be faceless in some businesses, but not this. People need to hear why you went, what you learned, what you did, because you're a success story. If you can't talk about that, there's very little value there. Yeah. The only way to do that was to be open about all the good and bad. Yeah. And I made mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. And I talk about those mistakes. Yeah. And you Sometimes do. You, you've, you've got a huge following on TikTok, your, your social media world. You're very, uh, people are attracted to your humility, honesty of your experience. And I think that's why you have so many followers is that uh, you talk about things as they happen without it's unvarnished. And uh, there's something that attracts people to that. That's that people, people want to hear that. Well, I appreciate you saying that one, one thing that I encourage all fel- anyone to do, especially convicted felons is take the ammunition that people may have against you and acknowledge if it's true, yeah. right? So like there, there are people in this industry who will say, oh, can't believe Perperny was on Dr. Phil and a Fox contributor. He only served one year in a minimum security camp. That's true. Yeah. Perperny didn't serve time in enough prisons. That's true. If the measure is how long someone served to help you, I'm not the guy. My partner did 26 years. Yeah. In 20, <laughs> right, years. 45 years. Is he sentence, qualified? Right. <laughs> right, is he qualified? So you just learn to, to, to use that and not run from it. Yeah. And, and sometimes marketers try to create this world where everything is perfect when the reality is if we're speaking openly and honestly, it's not perfect. And I find a lot of value. People learn as much from the bad as much as the good. And I'll never stop sharing mistakes that I have made and continue to make. Oh, and that's why I think you are where you are. Uh, I got to ask you this, Justin, because I ask everybody this. What? Because you've gone through a lot. You've had successes now that, that uh, you, you worked hard to get. What do you think is your biggest takeaway through your whole experience? Well, I think there's one thing, there's a difference between, say you're going to, there's a difference between identifying your values that sounds good, faith, family, character, and it's another thing to actually live faithfully to them. 
So you and I were both in prison. We know what it's like to say what we're going to do when we come home. Kind of like being a college student whose parents are paying their tuition and bills, and then they come, they graduate, and it's like, oh my god, I have to do this on my own. So it's one thing. To, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it, right? And, and I use the analogy of a marathon. It's very exciting to start the marathon, and everyone celebrates the end. But the real hard part and work is in between. So that process, the daily deliberate grind, working on days where nobody cares, nobody calls, people hate you. When I started to do videos, I thought were great. I'm like, oh, this has three views. Should I delete it? No, I'm going to keep it up because someday they'll have 300,000 views. Yeah. And I'm going to show the growth. So I just find like it's that that work and doing it on days like you would just rather do about anything else. Yeah. That's important. But living faithfully to those values, whether it's spending time with my kids, trying not to be a workaholic, mm-hmm. being attentive, staying off my phone when I'm with them. It's trying to live faithfully to my values, and it, it's hard, but I don't want to be a contradiction. I don't want to be an inauthentic fraud or fool, so that requires me to wake early and stay consistent. I love that. That's a good place to end it. Justin, um, White Collar Advice, if somebody wants to get to you, that's an incredible website. There's so much information on that website. Uh, your books... Uh, lessons from prison, ethics and motion. I'm sure you can get on Amazon. Um, they can get it for free. Oh, if that's right. You can. Call. You can click on it for free on your website, right? Yeah, you you can get the book for free. And every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, we lead a weekly webinar. Uh, I we had it we had it today. We had more than 100 people on today. We bring on subject matter experts like the former head of uh, federal probation. Uh, tons of great people. I typically lead them. Today, we covered 20 ways to get a longer federal prison sentence, we talked about financial litigation unit and dealing with restitution. Mm. So if any, it's free. We don't sell anything on these webinars. If anyone would like to attend a webinar, just go to whitecolloradvice.com and register, and then you'll get the email link for the our webinar Wednesday. Perfect. I'll put that in the show notes, too. Thank you. Uh, and then following you on social media, I know you're actually, I think there's, t- you, you are under white collar advice and your name, Justin Papernay. Yeah. So yes. So white collar YouTube, just go to white collar advice. TikTok is white collar advice. And I think Instagram is just Justin Papernay. Gotcha. But the real value is even though I have many more followers on TikTok, I would argue the real value cause I produce longer content. Yeah more informative content, I think, is probably <laughs> going to be, it's going to be on the, the White Collar Advice YouTube channel. Okay, great. And, you know, for anybody who got something out of this today, share the show, share the show. And, and I know it's a hassle, but I always say this, if you like it, please go to Apple or Spotify, leave a review because that that just puts the show on steroids when, you, when we have those reviews. Uh, if you want to know any more about me and what I'm doing, BrentCassidy.com. It's with a T-Y. It's not like Sean and David Cassidy. Um, if you want to check out my book, Nightmare Succession, get on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And uh, Justin, I appreciate you being on here. You're, you're a man of uh, wisdom of your experience and sharing it with others. And uh, you, it's good stuff. Before I let you go, I think I'd love to have you come on on our Thursday webinar where I can interview you for a few minutes about your experience in prison and how you began to build this brand and writing and now using this platform as a tool to inspire and educate other people. So we're going to take a week off of next week's webinar with the holiday, maybe two or three Thursdays from now, you can come on, I can interview you. And of course, I'll share your, your 
podcast with everyone and encourage them to subscribe. Perfect. So I'd love to have you on as a guest. I love that, Justin. As I used to say to uh, my people when I was writing my emails back and forth from Leavenworth, stay strong and I'll do the same. Nightmare success in and out.